Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. My name is Jay Harvey. I'm an assistant pastor and scholar in residence here at Exilic Church, and it's a great joy to be with you guys this morning. Um, uh, my main work is with the uh, seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, so I'm in and out quite a bit, uh, but we've been at Exilic since 2018, uh, back when the church was meeting over at 31st and 5th in a place called Adelante Studios, um, Ancient History Now, um, but it's always wonderful and refreshing to be here. Last Sunday, Pastor Aaron preached a sermon, and I knew I was scheduled to preach this sermon. And so as soon as I saw his sermon title, I thought I know what my sermon title is going to be. So his sermon title was something like a quarter mid crisis. I think that was what the sermon title was on. And the sermon was a great sermon, by the way, on what's called calling. What is the purpose of your life? And he really went into great detail, I commend it to you if you didn't hear it, about a primary purpose and a secondary purpose, or a primary call and a secondary call. It's one of the best messages I've heard on that subject. So anyway, I see this, and it says, a quarter mid-crisis. And I immediately think, oh, the title of my sermon is going to be Solid Mid. Solid (laughs) Mid-Crisis, not any quarter mid. But then that title was stolen from me as he began his message He went ahead and said that he was 40, and so he's in quarter mid, but that by the time you're 50, you're in three quarters of your life done mode. And that was too depressing to say three-quarter life crisis, you know, I'm close to being done, so I gave that up. And said just went with primary call. So um, this is really a follow-up, just uh, looking again at this primary call aspect, which Pastor Aaron mentioned um, last week, this aspect of Knowing Christ, regardless of our age, uh, uh, place of career, where we are, what's happening with us, that always being the primary call that we have as Christians. It's the thing that persists through everything. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, um, this is one of the great hopes of the Christian faith as well. It's something that gives us grounding, gives us peace, gives us perseverance, uh, gives us joy in the most incredible types of difficulties, is this idea that no matter what's happening, the most important thing is this relationship that we can have with Jesus Christ. So um, I was recently listening to a speech commemorating uh, the life of a little-known pastor. And he was my pastor whenever I was, uh, in, uh, whenever I was a youth. And um, the speaker uh, pointed out uh, how small his stature was. And he was drawing this contrast because 
this pastor to certain people was very well known. He didn't write anything. He wasn't in a very impressive position of leadership. But he's kind of famous for the number of young people that he impacted. And so he talked about the first time that he met this guy. His name's Jimmy Turner. That he said, hey, I heard so much about this guy. And he said, honestly, the first time I met him, I was like, are you serious? Like, he was so unimpressive, so slight of stature, so small relative to his reputation. And he had this twitch. Like, he was mainly known for this twitch. He was in a car accident, and he would just do like this all the time. Like, for, um, and, uh, but when he would sit with you, he had this phrase that was like his secret weapon of caring for people. And the phrase is very simple. I commend it to you. Just tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. And you could sit with this person for, um, you know, 30 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour, whatever it was. And somehow when you left his presence, you were different. Only later when I took advanced doctoral classes and counseling and things like that, I realized whether he knew it or not, I don't know if he ever knew this, but that's sort of an ideal prompting to get somebody to share with you without judgment uh, what's going on. Isn't is, It's suggestive, but not too coercive and isn't it all laced with any notions of judgment? Just tell me more about that. So you can try that. But as I'm thinking about uh, this person who was unimpressive, who lived in pain for most of his life, and yet had an incredible impact, though without affirmation, without power, such that the at the end of his life, there's this whole event to commemorate him. I was thinking, uh, what motivates someone to persevere like that? And so today I wanted to look at this particular passage that we read at the life of the Apostle Paul. Because Paul lived in a similar way. And when it comes to knowing Christ, one of the things that we see from Paul is that you have to learn to navigate your losses. You have to learn to navigate your losses. Um, By the time you become 50 years old, your losses sort of take on uh, another scale. We all have loss, right? No matter how old you are. If you're a child, um, you know, I remember one of my, my children one time has a, had a bir- had a Christmas was close to a birthday. And, um, and so by the time Christmas came around, when she was two, she thought it was her birthday again. And all the presents were for her. And so I started crying, right? Because everybody else is opening up her presents, right? So a sense of loss, right? It's a two-year-old. But I'm telling you, the tears were real right? We all have loss. Uh, my loss is not more significant than yours. Uh, yours is not more significant than mine. It's not the magnitude of the loss that makes it significant. It's that it's your loss, right? That's what makes it significant. But w- by the time you get to 50, you do have a different type of loss that you start to consider, kind of macro losses. You're losing your body. Sometimes you feel like you're losing your mind. You look back over your life at decisions you made, like not buying Apple or Microsoft in the late 90s, right? You're faced with this opportunity, and you don't do it. And you realize, oh, what could have happened for me, you know? Um, so we need to know how to navigate our losses. And the Apostle Paul speaks about this in this particular passage. And he says that the only way you can navigate your losses, um, it's really the same way that you navigate your gains, because... Um, if you're either striving to achieve something, if you don't achieve it, you don't gain it, it feels like a loss. Or if you achieve something, right, if you achieve something later on in your life, you can find it wasn't what you thought it was. And then what you gained actually becomes 
a loss. But the Apostle Paul says, when you look back at your life or you experience whatever you're experiencing right now, the key thing is you have to have uh, the knowledge, the knowledge of Jesus Christ in order to evaluate your gains and your losses. So he says that in verse 8, that he counts everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Note something really important here. Uh, it's the knowledge of Christ that comes first. Now, when, when Paul speaks about knowing Christ, he's doing that with a very significant background as a Jew in the Old Testament scriptures, where this idea of knowing God as a certain kind of God set the Jewish people apart from every other people on the earth. So the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, he says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And in the background of what Paul is saying here is this particular verse. This idea that knowing Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this picture of who God is enables Paul to look back on everything that he had gained and see it is not worth anything. He even calls it rubbish or garbage compared to knowing Christ. Why? Well, consider what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah is basically saying, to be happy, you're going to need three things, and you're going to need them forever. You need someone like God to love you steadfastly, through thick and thin, to never forsake you. You need someone to practice justice. And in this context, that means to make the right decisions. People in authority to make the right decisions. You need someone to make relationships right. That's what it means to practice righteousness in the Old Testament. And you need someone who can do this forever, even beyond death, defeating death itself. And think about that. If you know someone who has your future in their hand so that you don't even fear death, you know that they'll love you forever and never leave you. You know you can always trust their decisions. And you know that you can always trust that they're going to make every relationship right in the end for you and the whole earth. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? That's what Paul is saying. He came to understand Jesus Christ is. And compared to this love, compared to this ability to trust, compared to having a relationship with someone for whom even the fear of death was completely removed, 
every other thing he had gained, he could say was rubbish. Or he could say was, he counted it as rubbish. Now that's actually very important. Because if all the things that Paul had gained were not actually rubbish. And this can create a quirk in Christian theology that leads to all sorts of weird asceticism and psychological problems. Paul says, look a number of times, he says he counted, or some translations say he considered them rubbish. Think about the things that Paul had gained. Think about the things that you gained. Some of the things Paul says he gained are really good things. He was a Pharisee, which is like a respected group of people. You know, scholarly, well-informed. He never ceases calling himself a Pharisee. He was proud of his Jewish heritage. That was something that was also respectable and good. And he never disowns his Jewish heritage. These are things that he had gained. And they are good. And yet, why would he say that he counts them as rubbish? No, he doesn't say they are rubbish, but he counts them as rubbish. He counts them as rubbish because if they start to occupy the wrong place in his life, if they start to take up the wrong space in his heart, they're no longer the good things God intends them to be. But they can instead become obstacles to happiness itself. But then Paul also gained some bad things, right? One of the things Paul says that he gained was he was a persecutor of the church. I was thinking about this passage, and it's like Paul had a really strong sense of justice in his own conception. He knew that the Christian church in his mind was the problem, and he was going to stamp it out, and he actually gave license and approved of murder. So that's a whole other kind of gain, right? There are certain kinds of gains in which we harm people, or we do things that are wrong to indulge ourselves and to satisfy ourselves, and the act itself is inherently wrong. But it's important to see that all gains are not the same, and that a lot of them are actually good things, but still, they only retain their goodness if you view them in light of the primary call and the ultimate goodness of knowing Jesus Christ himself, the one who loves you, the one you can trust for decisions, the one who will fix every relationship, and the one who holds your future in his hand. And by the way, this love of Jesus Christ is actually why he died on the cross. I mean, think about it. What do you do if you love someone 100% and you're committed to their future, and at the same time, You're the one who's 100% responsible for justice and right relationships in the world. And you can't forsake either responsibility. But the person that you love has broken justice. What do you do? What Jesus did is he died. He died for you so that you can be just that you can be right, and that you can be with him. So his love leads to his death so that you don't have to face justice. That's a great love, isn't it? So when we look at our gains and we look at our losses in light of 
knowing Jesus, everything gets reframed for us. The next thing that Paul says is he came to realize, says this in verse 9, he came to realize that knowing Jesus like this gave him a new kind of righteousness. Being in union with Christ, he literally says, um, uh, in him, not having a righteousness of my own, the very top line that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. That being in Jesus in this personal relationship gives Paul this assurance of his conscience that he has this status of righteous. Why is Paul saying this? And why is it significant for us? Paul is saying this because, as we saw, God is committed to righteousness for the whole earth. And this righteousness became very important to Paul. Paul was just mistaken about how you get it. Paul thought that he was going to get it by being obedient to the law and being super zealous. What he came to understand is that the law was indeed intended to give us a way to live, but it was never intended to be the basis of the relationship we have with God himself. And he came to see that it's Jesus who gives this righteousness. It's Jesus who gives it freely, not himself, as a gift. So that's one reason, and it's it's a reason for all of us, that the God whom we worship is a God for whom righteousness is paramount. And so we have to ask ourselves, how will I bear up under that? And the answer is we won't unless we're in Jesus and he gives it to us. Another reason I think that Paul sticks this in, almost like an interlude here, is because of his personality. Um, People become Christians for different kinds of reasons. Um, And Paul was somebody who had a very sensitive conscience, was very motivated, was very well trained, and very ambitious. And for him, I think righteousness was especially in the forefront as like a goal. And what he came to see was what he was looking for was actually already there for him in Christ. And he could rest from that. You may be looking for something else this morning. You still need the righteousness of God in Christ. Don't get me wrong. But that may not be what you're looking for. You may be looking for the peace that only God can give you in Christ. You may be looking for someone to guide you through a difficult season. A God that only Jesus can give you, only God can give you in Christ. You may be looking for a relationship with someone if you're uh, in the sciences who can make sense of everything that you're learning, questions too vast to understand. You may be looking for someone in whom all things cohere. That, too, is Jesus. Now, in Christ, whatever is good that is most important to us is ultimately found in Jesus in fullness. So Paul reevaluates and reframes his gains and losses. He finds this righteousness in Christ. And then lastly, lastly we see that um, in knowing Christ, um, Paul is able to live without fear of death. What does he mean? 
when he says that in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Well, that I may know him, that word and, in the Greek it's a little word called chi, and the second phrase isn't so much additive, but explanatory. That is, to know him is to know the power of resurrection. This Jesus overcame death itself. And what this means is, for Paul, that daily life in knowing Jesus is daily living no longer under the fear of death, no longer under the fear of guilt, no longer under the fear of judgment, but living with this incredible freedom and confidence. I mean, think about this. How many decisions do we make because we're afraid? How many decisions do we make because we're bitter? How many decisions do we make because we're guilty? How many decisions do we make because we are ashamed? And what Paul is saying is, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection is to be free from all of that. It's an incredible, incredible confidence. Why the suffering? Sharing in his sufferings. Because when you know Christ like this, you're going to be drawn into a relationship with him whenever you heed that he's the one who loves you. When you heed that he's the one who makes the best decisions, and so you go with him and not with yourself or others. When you trust that he's the one who tells you how to live your relationship so you follow him and not other people, that's going to lead to suffering. Because as you know, not everybody is living this way. Not everybody is living this way. But it's a suffering that's going to be filled with greater joy than going your own way because each time you trust him and walk with him is an experience of the power of the resurrection itself. You know that guy that I was telling you about, Jimmy Turner, the event that was commemorating his life was actually his funeral. I wasn't able to go, and so I was watching it online, and there were uh, hundreds and hundreds, there were hundreds of people there uh, remembering his personal impact on them, again with no notoriety. But he worked up until the day of his death, literally. Tim Keller, as many of you know, is a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary where I serve in the city. As a professor, in the semester in which he died, Tim Keller missed three classes. That was it. Tim Keller actually never retired. He just changed the type of work that he did. Why was that? Why would that be? One super notable, one relatively unknown, both servants, both knowing Christ, finding in him a righteousness from God. 
and living with the ultimate freedom and satisfaction in the power of his resurrection. And we can do that too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to open our eyes this morning just to see how much you love us, to see how much we can trust you, um, to see that death itself has been defeated, that our very future is in your hands. Let us walk with you as if it is so, we pray in your name. Amen.